Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better. It's a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Greg Waugh. And I'm Dan Beeston. And in this episode, we've got some exciting discussion of bubbles. That's right. We recently were mentioned on No Such Thing as a Fish. In fact, I'm pretty certain that some of our listeners right now found us through being mentioned by Anna Krasinski on that podcast. And what she talked about was how we, in a long time in the past, talked about how bubbles formed and how they didn't pop, they teared. Or they didn't tear, they popped. I'm getting confused. They tear at a particularly large size rather than popping. Right, there we go. Now, we went back and we were excited and went, yay, and we we told all our friends about it. And when we went back and checked through the the five years... did we check? I didn't listen to all five years. Like, I sort of went, I don't remember talking about that. We don't think we did. Um... But but some of our new listeners who have just joined us, they're going through the whole thing. So if you hear us say that, please do point out where we said it. terribly sure. Now, we, we have talked about bubbles a lot, though. It's a, yes. We've had a couple of episodes where we went on and on about bubbles. They're fun. They're exciting. They are fun. So we thought we would do a makeup episode just in case we've made a, we're, we're a pack of liars. And so we've talked to our interviewee today all about bubbles and cavitation. So oh, we got my an God. Expert you thought us- the last bubbles were fun. Oh, hold on to your hats. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Daniel Obraskov, the Research Associate Professor at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. For our listeners who don't know the difference between a PhD, postgrad, and a professor and an associate professor, what does all this mean? Is, is, is it real or is it just like made up? Well, different universities have different labels, and some call them lecturer and senior lecturers, and some call them associate professors and assistant professors and so on. The main distinction is that you can either be a PhD student where you do a well-timed three-year-long project that is normally funded for that time, and you live on a, on a very minimal allowance maybe 30 grand a year or so. And then the next level is a postdoctoral employment, which is still for a fixed term, but you now live under normal living conditions. You are employed, say, to similar standards as an engineer or, or um, you know, not, not a long way from it. And then there's the next level where you acquire tenure at the university. So as a matter of fact, you now have an ongoing contract. From what I understand, tenure is kind of like they give you a cornucopia filled with all of the food on all of the planet Earth. Is that how that works? People seem to be very excited about tenure. (laughs) That that used to be the case. (laughs) Once you had tenure, the idea was that you then have full academic freedom and you do whatever you want. And see, that's the case quite a smart concept. If you have an Einstein, all you want to do is give him tenure rather than impose anything on what he has to do or what he should deliver. Uh, because if you would do that with a hundred Einsteins, you can be sure that one of them will just crack the code. Of course, these days, research has moved into a slightly more sort of industrial mode where it tries to be planable and you know have clear-cut goals that can be reached within a set time and so on. And indeed, some of the modern research can deal with these requirements. So, for instance, if you are involved in a 
very large telescope project such as the Square Kilometre Ray. That's a billion-dollar project, roughly, um, and not quite as much for phase one, but then potentially more for the next phase. Anyway, such a big project requires very clear work packages where scientific researchers and engineers have to deliver on time. And even if there is research involved, that research is planable. And a lot of the research has evolved into that slightly more planned way. And so tenure is not quite what it, what it used to be. You are still constantly assessed once you have tenure. You have to deliver a certain amount of publications. Sometimes you have to do teaching, outreach helps, and so on. Okay? And you yes. can be uh, in bad circumstances fired if you don't. So I'm assuming then like when tenure comes up, let's say it just becomes something like the Hunger Games. They get all these very clever people in, a, in like a forest, give them weapons, and say whoever comes out of the forest alive but gets tenure. Well, yes, that... that, that... <laughs> I guess it's not the worst description ever. (laughs) It's pretty close. How to to say it? Um, That's true, but the forest can be oddly shaped. So it's not that you know that the forest is 10 kilometers long and that's the path you have to go. You're sort of fighting your way through the forest, and it's actually a very interesting path, okay? So you find fruits along the way, and you encounter new animals, and yeah, and there you find a new person and you go, you go a certain path together, you do 100 meters together and then you separate again and so on. And then suddenly the trees stop and there you are. Okay? It's not that you're fighting and fighting and fighting and you always see that goal ahead and, and then you make it. It's, it sort of comes almost to be as a surprise to me anyways. I wasn't in the mode where I was only thinking of tenure and then I reached it. It just suddenly, it you know, got a few more tenure positions. I thought, why not to apply now? Yep. And it worked out. And for a lot of colleagues around who also obtained tenure, that's, uh, that's a similar story. Mm. So it's by no means just this uh, pure fight for it. It's, it's an interesting path and sometimes comes as a surprise. Ken, thank you very much for taking my ridiculous analogy and actually making something of it. That's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> But we're here today not to talk about how the the inner workings of universities, but actually about bubbles. So you have, just for our listeners, the the teaser for this is Dr. Danael has taken bubbles to almost to the top of the atmosphere and back to learn all about them. So is that, what's that about? I thought bubbles went to the top of the atmosphere by themselves. I've blown bubbles. They just go straight up. That's right. I assume they last forever. Now we've learned that Dr. Danael actually taking them personally all the way to the top of the atmosphere. (laughs) Well, that brings up a really good point. When you say bubble, you can think of a thousand different things. You can think of the little soap bubbles that you blow and that indeed have a tendency sometimes to rise and float. But you can also think of other bubbles, Uh, say the little bubbles that you see sometimes in the water when a when a fish is breathing, okay, those would be air bubbles inside water. But then there's a third class of bubbles that are called cavitation bubbles, okay? They are like air bubbles in water, except that there is no air inside. There's essentially just a vacuum. But, right. You're going to ask, well, what? How do you... But, but there's all that water around, surely. Like, if I know anything about vacuums, is that nature abhors them. Exactly. 
There you go. A vacuum should not be able to exist in water, shouldn't it? So if you have a vacuum bubble in water, it's not going to last, isn't it? It's going to collapse in no time. So the question is, how do you get one of those bubbles in the first place? That's a slightly different question. But once you have one of them, it collapses in no time. And as a matter of fact, it concentrates an enormous amount of energy in a single point. Okay? And that's why these bubbles are so interesting. But now let me just go one step back and tell you a little bit about the origin and the, the role and the context of these bubbles. So cavitation is something that is a little bit similar to boiling. When you uh, boil a kettle, you suddenly see vapor, bubble, vapor bubbles appear at the bottom of the kettle. Okay, so the water evaporates. Now, you do that with heat, with high temperature in the case of the kettle, but you can also do it without changing the temperature by reducing the pressure. Okay? So you give it a back rub? Say it again? Give it a back rub, <laughs> put on some nice relaxing music, really take the pressure yeah. off that water. <laughs> That sort of thing. Exactly. Well, imagine it. Imagine Tell it it's got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> take a kettle up to the top of Mount Everest. You will find it boils at the temperature that is much, much lower than 100 degrees. Oh, I, I forget what it was. It might be 40 degrees or thereabouts. Wow. Yeah? Now, if you, that's because the pressure, the air pressure is so high, so low up there. If you can reduce the air pressure around the water even more, well, guess what? It boils at room temperature. So now, make this stretch of imagination. Imagine, say, a ship propeller, okay, in the water, rotating at high speeds and so on. You can just about imagine that somewhere at the edge of the, of, the, of the prop, there will be a zone where perhaps only one millimeter large, where the pressure will be very low, lower than on Mount Everest. And so suddenly the water evaporates, okay? And you have one of these little cavitation bubbles. So, so, then, so it's, it, it's, it's not actually, it's not, is it boiling? I mean, is it, do we call it boiling or is it, no, is it just going from no. liquid to gas? It's going from liquid to gas without boiling, okay? Right, but okay. That's yep. simply a matter of what you call boiling. Okay? By definition, yeah. call it boiling if you make that transition from liquid to vapor by putting heat into the system. If you do it by reducing the pressure, chill the whole thing a bit, as you said, you call it cavitation, okay? So there are two, uh, hang two on, ways hang of... Hang on, hang on, hang on. So... Those bubbles underwater with, at a really low yeah. pressure, you're saying that it evaporates, but doesn't that mean that there's water vapour in the bubble? You're right. There is water vapour in the bubble, oh. except that water vapour will be at extremely low pressure because water vapour doesn't have much pressure at 25 degrees. Okay? That's the interesting thing. There's, each liquid has what we call in physics the saturation pressure of the vapour, where... Each liquid produces a bit of vapor. That, that's why your clothes on the on the wash line dry because they they constantly vaporize. Yeah, they're not boiling. They are not boiling. And no. if you ask, what's the pressure of the water vapor cause? Uh, you know, just above your undies that are drying, you will find this. This you can you cannot even measure that that pressure um, compared to the normal air pressure. Yeah? Okay. So it's an extremely low vapor pressure that is typical at room temperature. So you're right. Cavitation bubbles aren't exactly vacuums, but they 
are almost like vacuums. And indeed, as soon as those bubbles find themselves in normal conditions again, okay, so say the bubble detaches from the ship propeller and suddenly is suspended in normal pressure conditions again, mm -hmm. it behaves like a vacuum bubble. Okay? It wants to disappear as quickly as possible. Because so when it's being created, there is a zone with very low pressure. There's nothing pushing in on it, and therefore it can it can form. But the moment it detaches from the propeller, then the pressure from the outside uh, is is the same as the normal water pressure, and that tries to crush the bubble. Absolutely got it. You okay. might also say that the bubbles form by the water being literally ripped apart. Okay, that's sometimes oh. we'll find that an easier image to think of. More water to fill in that volume, and so a bubble forms because there simply isn't enough water. Okay. Right. So, right. Anyways, that, that, that's sort of the mental picture to have in mind that these bubbles can form dynamically in uh, complex turbulent liquids. And not only can they form, but they almost always do form in, in certain conditions. And it's very, very hard to build ship propellers that do not produce such bubbles. And I just picked the ship propellers as one example. Uh, you can imagine that the same applies in all sorts of liquid conditions. For instance, in hydro power stations in Swiss Alps, when the water rushes down in, into the generators and is supposed to create electricity, well, guess what? A certain fraction of that energy is wasted because of cavitation bubbles. Would you always get them on a curved surface that's moving? Is that is that the issue? So the fan blade, the propeller, the the motor wheel, or whatever it is. So if it's curved, you're going to get bubbles on one side of it. Yes. Uh, well, curved surfaces are particularly prone to it because they have this wing effect. Okay. Well, they they are they are wing shaped. And the whole idea of these surfaces is that they produce low pressure on one side and high pressure on the other side. That's why the ship propeller can push the boat. Mm. Yeah, because it produces high pressure behind the boat and low pressure in front. And the same thing with the generator blade. The water that rushes down has to turn the axis. So on one side of the blade, you have to produce high pressure with the water, and on the other side, you have to produce the lowest possible pressure so that the blade wants to move as fast as it can. But one side effect of that low pressure is that you can create cavitation bubbles if you don't do it exactly right. Yep. Now, there are some animals that harvest this uh, possibility to, to create cavitation bubbles. A really interesting one is the mantis shrimp. Uh -huh. It's pictures of this shrimp that has two claws. One is just like a normal little shrimp claw, and the other one is massive, almost as large as its own body. So it's one a rare example of, a, of an animal that is not mirror symmetric. Right. It so doesn't look like the right side. You have to Google it, mantis shrimp. Uh, or cavitating shrimp, you will find the funniest, the, the funniest pictures of these shrimps. And uh, we'll put one in the show notes to make sure. We'll put some links to the show notes anyway. It's so one the of our favourite animals it. here at Smart Enough to Know Better. What with its <laughs> yeah. it being able to see seventeen different types of colour and and supersonic <laughs> claws. Yeah. I don't think all of these mantis um, are these cavitating ones. You actually probably want to Google for cavitating shrimp first, and then it will put you to the right. You'll find a few examples of those completely asymmetric claws. So they have the, normally the right claw has the ability of snapping really fast. And what it does, it creates a low-pressure zone behind the claw that cavitates. And that cavitation bubble then collapses. Okay, so it creates a vacuum bubble, 
vacuum bubble collapses, and it's the collapse of the bubble that can create shock waves that kill all the little animals around them. Right. <laughs> so it's a convoluted yes. story, but now that we have sort of spoken about how these bubbles can be generated in industrial systems or in nature, maybe you want to talk a little bit about why these bubbles are, are actually important and interesting, is they? Well, yeah, I think so. I wanted to know why these bubbles are so energetic. I mean, you have a small bubble. I understand, okay, the water gets ripped apart and then closes back down. But why is there so much energy produced when the bubble collapses? It's only a small thing. It only existed for a very short period of time. Why? It seems to be almost more energy collapsing than there was to create it. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a very good and subtle point. So there is not an enormous amount of energy in such a cavitation bubble. But when the bubble collapses, all that energy gets compressed into a single point. So ah. the density of energy in that one point is suddenly very high. Just to illustrate this a little bit, if you go back to the physics textbook and you look at the equations for how you solve liquid motions, and you study the case of a spherical hole inside water, okay, make a very simple model of a cavitation bubble that is just a spherical vacuum. And now you try to study how this sphere evolves. Well, you can write down the equations and you will find that very, very quickly, this sphere becomes a smaller sphere and a smaller sphere again and so on. But interestingly, the normal equations will tell you that the collapse speed is infinity. Okay, so infinitely large collapses. <laughs> now, of course, we know from more advanced theories in physics that there is no such thing as infinite speed. There is, there's the speed of light, of course, is the absolute limit. But also well before that, once you encounter the, the speed of sound of the liquid, you have all sorts of complications. And, and of course, that little bit of water vapor that is still inside the bubble will do funny things as well. But just the fact that the most basic equations give you an infinite collapse speed hints a little bit at this enormous concentration of energy that is about to happen. Right. Yeah. So when you have a bubble that is only one millimeter in diameter and you let it collapse and you observe it with a high-speed camera, what you normally observe is a flash of light as the bubble collapses. Flash of light. It's not, a, it's not a shock wave like a sound shock wave. It's actually a flash of light. There is everything, but there's also right. a flash of light. And that wow. flash of light is thermal radiation, mostly, that tells you that there must be temperatures of about 10,000 degrees inside the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> so in, hang on, wow. so in, <laughs> in water behind a propeller on a boat, some, there are certain points of that ocean that are, well, at least the vapor, going up to 10,000 degrees Celsius. Exactly. And even wow. if it's only a bunch of 100 or 1,000 atoms for every bubble, there are very small zones that are all the time excited to these temperatures. At the same time, a shock wave is emitted that is so high in pressure that inside the shock wave, the water can get compressed by about three times. Just, just imagine that. Just take, just pour a glass of water out of the tap uh, or, or into a, you know, one of those plastic bottles, a Coke bottle, yeah. and try to compress it manually with your hands. You will find that liquid essentially cannot be compressed. If there's only air in the bottle, you can very easily squeeze it. 
mm-hmm. if it's filled with liquid, very, very hard to do anything. You can only wobble the bottle around a bit. You cannot really make it smaller, can you? No, and no, yes. It's enormous force if you were, you know, if you were the most... <laughs> The strongest person you can. If you were the mountain, if you were the the Gregor Kaglain, I got the wrong one from from Game of Thrones, who is actually played by the strongest man on earth. Even he couldn't do it. <laughs> That's right. Well, he could probably compress it by about one percent. I don't know. Yeah. No, I can. <laughs> I can only do about one percent. Yeah, no, I've been, <laughs> I've been working out a bit, and that's uh, that's, uh, that's my go-to is squeezing bottles of water. <laughs> Maybe two percent. You know, I don't want to boast. That's right. So these bubbles, imagine they can do it a factor three. They make your whole water bottle three times smaller. But when that that's returns to its normal I... pressure, that would be explosive as crazy. Exactly. So behind the shockwave, you have you. You know, you sort of have to restore that that pressure into a normal pressure. That creates a, a depressure zone behind the shock waves. It's complicated physics that's going on. So even if you only have a tiny amount of energy, by concentrating it into a single point almost, you get all these interesting physical phenomena. You get light, you get pressure. Sometimes you get water checks, checks that are only about... Uh, the size of a human hair, but they are so fast that if you put a piece of metal in it, they get a hole drilled into them. What? Really? That's yeah. insane. Okay. So I'm now terrified of mantis shrimp, I'd like to point out. I'm like, I'm never going to, I'm, I'm not going to, I really wish I hadn't sent all those mean letters to other mantis shrimp I talked to before because uh, <laughs> it could really hurt me now. I'm, I'm not going to go swimming ever again. <laughs> all those shrimps I've been eating for years. Oh, man, they're out to get me now. And Greg's colorblind, so he can't see red. So a, a, a creature that can see uh, red, green, and blue and, like, 14 other colors, that's just that's just picking at his insecurities. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah. I appreciate that, yes. As the colorblind person in this conversation, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's, this is incredible. So how long have we known about this, this incredible energy, light, shockwaves, metal drilling water jets? This seems – surely the world should know about this. This is something that everyone should, seems should know. Well, that's what we are trying to do, spread the word. I mean, this, these bubbles, they are fascinating, isn't they? You don't have to be a physicist to appreciate them. It's uh, it just in your head. You think about them, a teeny bud bubble in water, and you let it implode, and, and here you have a cascade of the most interesting physics there that you can think of. And now, these bubbles, they were originally discovered in the case of um, ships and hydro turbines. So indeed, the examples that I told you before are sort of the historical origin of the study of these bubbles. Because it was simply found that if you have a a ship with a propeller and you think, well, I'm going to make a more powerful ship by just making that propeller turn faster, well, you reach a limit uh, where the low-pressure zones are so significant that your propeller blades will just be full of cavitation bubbles. And the harming effect are enormous. Mm. So you turn your propeller in strong cavitation conditions after one hour, it will be be ripped apart. You can pull that thing out, you will see that there's only half the metal left. So you can't make like a submarine, a secret submarine that goes underwater, which what submarines do, uh, but it has a, it goes really fast, you know, like the hundreds of kilometers an hour underwater because it, it wouldn't be able to push itself with normal propellers. 
No, exactly. That's a real. It's by the way a real issue for torpedoes. Right. Yeah. I've seen Hunt the Red October, the movie The Hunt the Red October. So I know they they had a big problem with that. So that's that's where my knowledge comes from. Bad eighties movies. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And so, so there's lots of engineering issues. And, and look, a bit later, uh, I think it might have been as of in the second half of the last century, it was increasingly understood that you can also harvest the energy of these bubbles in somewhat beneficial ways. So, for instance, these days, if you have a kidney stone, then uh, the, the normal procedure, or one of the standard procedures to treat them is to apply ultrasounds from the outside, so it's non-invasive treatment, so you have ultrasound speakers that are put down on your on your tummy, and the ultrasound waves are emitted in such a way that they are focused more or less on the kidney stone, they're focused on the, on, on the kidney altogether, and, and where the kidney stone is, these ultrasound waves reflect off the kidney stones. And behind that reflected ultrasound, there's a slight low-pressure zone that just creates a few of these little cavitation bubbles. Uh, Inside you. Inside you, next to the kidney stone. And these bubbles, they implode and destroy the kidney stone. They pulverize it. That's why I keep a mantis shrimp in my bladder. Yeah, and then you can can pee your kidney stone out. Yeah. That's okay. Okay, so it destroys kidney stones. Now, I mean, I, I, I'm all for medicine. Yay, medicine! Modern medicine's a great thing. But that seems like if they got it wrong and pointed it too far to the left, suddenly your pelvis explodes or something like that. We, like we think so, except that the cavitation bubbles in this case they only form on hard stuff. Yeah. Right. All the soft tissue that you have inside you is just not going to do the job. You need you uh. need something. It has the material properties of the kidney stone. So as a matter of fact, they just approach the kidney with these ultrasound speakers and they wobble them around a little bit. And you know, as soon as the sound wave hits the kidney stone, the erosion starts. I love the idea that when they were doing human trials, they went, oh, look, Greg, we'd like, to, we'd like to point this thing inside you that's going to raise parts of your body to 10,000 degrees and create a, a massive exploding bubble. Don't worry. We're pretty certain this won't damage your kidneys. We're just going to wave this beam around a bit. We're going to see what happens. <laughs> so, don't, we're doctors. We know what we're doing. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, I think I'm sure there was a lot of experiment. Actually, you know, this, this method has been applied before they knew that it was the cavitation that did the job. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, it was very experimental. And it, so, Greg, uh, Greg, we don't know how this works. We think it could be magic, but this, this sound wave is going to destroy your kidney stones. Don't worry. We're not sure how it works, but it's not going to hurt you. That's, that's a um, lot of medicine that, that you're be, talking about there. That's a different podcast for a different time, I think. So, uh, In defense of medicine, of course, the, um, oftentimes the systems are so incredibly complex, and here you have a sick patient and you've got to do something. You cannot go back to the textbook and the thousand PhD thesis first. Yeah, yeah, you have to yeah. do something, and you have heard of this method that you know has worked in a few cases, so may as well do it better than nothing. And exactly maybe, right, yeah. Just about at the point, actually. So it's an interesting transition in medicine, in my opinion, around this decade or these few decades where medicine is about to really transition from a very empirical, statistics-based science into something that is uh, more understanding-based, mm. where we have microbiology understanding, where we have the ability to simulate the folding of proteins, where we have the ability to sequence the genomes of viruses and to understand how antibodies properly work and perhaps even genetically engineer them to a specific 
disease. And so, I mean, all, all that understanding that is about to unfold, but it just turned out that we had to go down to such a deep level of microscopy and depth in physics mm. that you just had to start with something that was much more hand-wavy and in many cases <laughs> going wrong. Yeah. So what you're saying here is that when it all comes down to it, all biology, all chemistry, all medicine, it's all, it's all physics. Everyone, physics is the king. We should all just, we should all just doff our caps to physics. Well, there's maths. Well, maths is just the language of physics. Oh, is that what XKCD, you can get nicked. Uh. Yeah, well, that's uh, a very deep philosophical discussion that has been, <laughs> has been held for, for thousands of years, as a matter of fact. Is, uh. is you, mean, you mean Dan and I aren't the first people? Drat! Uh, yeah. You know, mathematics, is it something that belongs to the universe or is it something, is it a creation of the human brain? Uh, whatever it is, I, 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 agree, I agree with the points that you made, that the combination of physics and mathematics is a tool to deal with the physical laws. Uh, yep. Really yep. the foundation of nature as far as modern science can tell. And everything else, chemistry, biology, even complex life, is mm. appears to be a consequence of these fundamental laws. Now, this doesn't mean that it's always best to start with physics when you try to understand something. Oh. Uh, very often, it's better to take things at the macro level, and you can have emerging laws at a higher level that you might understand without understanding the microscopic laws that are the true origin of these thoughts. Yeah? For instance, if we, you know, we spoke about how to boil water before, how do you make a kettle? Well, you know, we know that it takes such and such energies to heat water from 25 degrees to 100 degrees. So you design a, an electrical device that puts that energy into the water within five minutes, and then sure enough, your water, water boils in five minutes. If you had to understand the quantum mechanics that makes you know, the little electrons of the electrical wire interact with the water molecules and dissociate them, and then they recombine and all that. You would never build your kettle. Yeah. <laughs> I actually solve most of my biology problems with a long lever and a solid spot to stand. There you go. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm in trouble with Peter and, and the RSPCA now, though, so... <laughs> yeah, physics isn't always the solution. Hey, to get back to cavitation bubbles... Is there a limit on how big a cavitation bubble can be? Not theoretically. Uh, there are, uh, as a matter of fact, extremely large cavitation bubbles. Uh, for instance, if, a, if you have a, an underwater explosion, if you have a grenade or even a nuclear bomb exploding underwater, that the ocean cavitates. And it's right. subsequent collapse of this cavitation bubble that can be metres across or hundreds of metres in the case of nuclear. Um, that, that collapse of this cavity that can be extremely damaging, just as damaging as that primary explosion. Right. So uh, if we could teleport, like if we had a Star Trek teleporter and they teleported up like a big ball of water from the ocean. Full of whales. Full like of in whales, Star Trek 4. Like in Star Trek 4. Yes. There'd be all sorts of problems. Like, is, does it, would it matter what shape that bubble was when you teleported it out? 
Oh, well, the, the more spherical it is, the, the more harmful, say, the, the effects can be. I just real that's a, when you said that, Dan, I just realized that was in Star Trek Four. They, they transport the whales away and the water and they bring them into the hold. It's hundreds of, I mean, it's, it's, it's enough for two full whales and, and space to swim in. The, the cavitation bubble left behind in the ocean must have been hundreds of metres across. But it was, a yeah. big, it was a big box, though. It went into a big box. It was a big box. box. So if suddenly, uh, okay, if a big box that, that's big enough to hold two full adult blue whales yeah. suddenly yeah. disappeared from the ocean, would that be yeah. like setting off a bomb? Yeah, definitely would, yeah. Star terrorist, excellent. Yeah, but that would be a massive, a massive explosion. Uh, that you would, you would, if that happened a few hundred meters from the coastline, you would, you would see, uh, you know, serious damage from the coastline. Oh my goodness! They did it in San Francisco Bay, as far as I remember. They would probably have taken out the bridge. They'd destroy everything. I love. That's bizarre. Oh my goodness! We've just learned something exciting about Star Trek. That's that's terrible. Yeah. Well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what would be the effect of, say, a cavitation bubble in a different substance that's not water? Like, if it was in like honey, which is really viscous. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, of course, viscosity can change the way this collapse happens. In the case of something as as viscous as as honey, that collapse will be less violent. So there are, there are lots of parameters that play a role. It's viscosity, it's also the compressibility. Actually, you will probably find that the honey is more compressible than water. Oh. So you, you even you could compress it by, by a bit more. Well, yeah, um, as I said, I've been working out. <laughs> eating, all that, eating all that honey, Dan, that's what, that's what you've been working out. That's what you've been doing. Shush. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, you know, you're, you're hitting on an, an interesting string here. A, a lot of the physics of these bubbles is not fully understood. And if you ask me, well, if you slightly change the conditions, would the temperature still go up to 10,000 degrees? Or would you still get the same strength of the shock or still get these little water jets? Um, oftentimes, the, the answer is we don't know. Let's do the experiment. And, and that's a bit of an unsatisfactory situation. You would really think that, 21st century, you know, a bubble, a spherical bubble imploding should be sort of easy as, but it's not quite because because of the complexity of the physics that, that enters the game. So it is, uh, cavitation remains a topic of much research and uh, across all levels from very, very applied all the way down to very fundamental physical studies. And that's where, where we come in and we have since a few years run experiments to study just single cavitation bubbles. So we actually have an experiment that allows us to create one of these little spherical holes inside the water. And we spent years figuring out how you would create a perfectly spherical vacuum. Mm. It's, it's not easy to do that. You don't want to just do it once. You want to sort of create, the, do it in a repetitive way and even in a way that can be re replicated in a different laboratory if you had to. So anyways, we now have an experiment that has a system of mirrors and lenses and so on that allows a laser pulse to be concentrated in a point. Now we're now, talking. 
When no, when lasers get brought into things, you know that it's now it's real science. We're gonna make it use lasers to make bubbles. I love it. Oh, I knew it was real yeah. science when he said, "Oh, we didn't know for sure, so we had to do the experiment." I we have to create more explosions. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so a very very high power laser. Um, it is so you know one of these green and the yak lasers, and they are the ones that. You put your hand in that laser, you 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 have a hole. But it oh. <laughs> so that's don't sort of that. that of course you would need to create the hole inside the water, okay? Because your hand is mostly water. So if if the laser can cavitate the water, it can cavitate your hand. Uh, but but on the good on the good note, it only lasts for a few nanoseconds. So that that laser is pulsed. And it creates one pulse that has an enormous amount of, of energy. As a matter of fact, the mean power during these few nanoseconds is a considerable power station, a few megawatts of, of power. <laughs> right. And wow. now that energy gets through a system of mirrors and concentrated on a single point as, as little as possible inside the water. And what it does is essentially it explodes the water. It just rips the water, poor little water molecules apart, and they are constituents, not just oxygen and hydrogen, but even farther into protons and, and electrons. Oh, my, so, holy oh my goodness. crap. So you're not just <laughs> boiling it. No, you're atomizing it, and then farther you're ionizing it. Yeah. <laughs> so you create the plasma. Yeah, so you remember those the, the states, you know, it goes ice, liquid water, vapor, and then comes the plasma if you, if you continue to eat it. Right. So it's, it's a bit like it's the same thing that we normally call a fire, I guess. So you, you put that energy in one nanosecond, that's a billionth of a second, in, into the water. It creates this mini explosion in a very, very, very small point, and suddenly you have this lots of heat and this plasma and of course this plasma needs more space and it expands it normally expands for about a millisecond to create the bubble that is a few millimeters across and that bubble now is perfectly spherical and while the plasma expands it cools down extremely quickly to reach room temperature after less than one millisecond and now there you are. You have this uh, lovely cavitation bubble. Uh, it's got almost a vacuum in inside. And all you had to do was set water on fire. That's right. You set one point of the water on fire and you create a <laughs> cavitation bubble. Easy. Easy. Easy, yes. And then you have a system of cameras and pressure sensors and spectrometers and you name it to measure all these little things that I was telling you about before. So we have a system in place that can measure the shock wave emitted by this cavitation bubble when it collapses. We have a high-speed camera that takes 10 million frames a second to <laughs> film the growth and collapse of this bubble. Then we have a spectrometer that can decompose the light that's produced by this bubble in its rainbow colors. And the spectrometer continues into an ultraviolet spectrometer because this bubble is so hot that most of the light is not even visible. It comes as UV light. Wow. So there's a whole box. And now here comes the clue. When you try to run this experiment, there's one annoyance, and that's gravity. 
Yeah, right? gravity's gravity's been upsetting me for years as well. My Birdman suit just uh, is ruined, ruined because of gravity. <laughs> I can barely yeah. get off the couch. Oh, it must be all these yeah. muscles, these heavy muscles. Yeah, yeah. I just had a baby seven weeks ago, and the poor bugger, he's still, he's still fighting gravity big times. So he's sort of trying to push himself up. He's got a giant head. That's the problem. Babies have giant heads, and therefore they can't tiny necks. It doesn't. It's a bad design, I tell you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the best. It's the best there is. <laughs> best one. Best one we've worked out so far. Yeah. One day robots will all be robots. Anyway, it's a different thing for a different time. Don't mind me. So gravity. That's that's the big issue, and mm. so that's that's why uh, we we now take this whole experiment that I just told you about. You can imagine it being quite complex. And we set that whole thing up inside an airplane, and that airplane is a very special airplane. There are only two or three of them in the world that is able to create microgravity conditions for a sustained period of 20, 30 seconds. This is the Vomit Comet? Well, almost. So the Vomit Comet is the U.S. version of this plane. Ours is the European one, and it's not called the Vomit Comet because the European one is uh, is a bit more fancy. It's a much larger plane, and it creates longer periods of microgravity, and in between the microgravity, you get steady, normal gravity for about two minutes. The U.S. version is smaller and doesn't have enough fuel allowance to allow for this steady 1G flight in between. So it just goes 0G, hypergravity, 0G, hypergravity, and that's why you know you have to vomit. The European version is actually it's, it's the better plane, clearly, and it's also much better for science, and uh, <laughs> you, you get more microgravity. But, yeah, it makes you less vomit, although I tell you, every time I've been in that plane, it, it must have been eight times now, every time we have a few passengers to, that are about to vomit. And do you want me to explain a little bit this flight maneuver? It's quite... Oh, oh, yeah, very much so. Yes, please. So I think yeah. that's the thing. Why, how does it form microgravity? Exactly. So, look, microgravity or what? Uh, no gravity you create by putting yourself into free fall. There's no other way in the universe to be weightless than, than to be in free fall. Yeah, we can't yeah, turn off uh, gravitrons or anything. Uh, no, no, you cannot. And every, uh, well, there are several, there are different versions how you can do that. You can you can just go inside the vertical elevator and cut the cable. <laughs> Seems dangerous. <laughs> That's right. Elevator free falls and you have microgravity. There are such elevators that are used professionally for such experiments. They are called drop towers, but they are really just elevators that are go up 100, 150 meters and then you, you're dropped. <laughs> or oh, just go down to Dreamworld and jump on the Tower of Terror. There you go. A bunch of something gives you, gives you a few seconds of microgravity. The other extreme is you go into the space shuttle or the, now the International Space Station. And essentially, you are in free fall. You're just in constant free fall around the Earth. Yeah? You, as you fall freely, you have such a large tangential velocity that you sort of fall just around the Earth rather than, than falling down at any one point. To quote Douglas Adams, you throw yourself at the ground and miss. You just yes. keep going off. You keep, go off the edge of the planet. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And now with 
these parabolic flights, you have something in between the elevator and the, and the space shuttle. So you sort of try to throw yourself off the ground, but you, you, you actually don't quite make it and you hit back into the ground. <laughs> and that's what this plan. <laughs> so that's actually an interesting feature. So that, that has to be avoided, of course. Now, now how does it work? <laughs> so you have this aircraft that's pretty much uh, has sort of the, the face of a, of a normal aircraft, civil passenger aircraft. The only difference is that it has a slightly strengthened wings and a, a slightly modified fuselage. <laughs> I'd really hope so. <laughs> yeah, and it's got a, a more powerful engines. So you are in this plane, and it does a steady cruise flight. It feels like in a normal passenger plane, you're flying horizontally. And then the pilot sort of announces, you know, two minutes to first parabola, one minute, 30 seconds, and so on. A countdown gets really excited, five, four, three, two, one. And then he says, pull up, with a French accent, so pull up. And at that moment... All you feel is that you are just heavily pressed into your seat, or if you lie on the floor, just towards that floor. Like, it's so extreme. It, it's this hypergravity about 2Gs. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we have all been in 2G conditions, but not necessarily for a sustained period of 20 seconds. That's how long it goes. Mm. And so after five seconds, you feel that your blood in your head is getting a little bit low. Uh, so you feel a bit dizzy, and it's just completely squeezed. If this is happening to you, it must also be happening to the pilots. That's happening so... to the pilots as well. They are also military test pilots, and so they, they, don't, they don't give a damn about it. They just fly. They just fly. <laughs> so that's what it feels like if you're in the plane. If you look at the plane from the outside, what the plane does, it pulls up its nose gradually to a very, very steep angle of about 48 degrees against the horizon. Mm. Yeah, so it's shooting into the air, literally. At a very high speed, almost the speed of sound, it's pushing up into the air. And it's at this moment that the pilot suddenly turns off the thrust. Yeah. It's like cutting off the wings of that airplane, basically. It's, it's, it's no longer functioning as an airplane. It's just like a piece of stone that you have thrown into the air, and as soon as the stone is released from your hand, it just flies this ballistic parabola. And that's yeah, exactly yeah. what the plane does in this moment. So by its own inertia, it now follows a almost parabolic arc. So it first goes up for about 12 seconds and then reaches a tipping point and goes down on the other side for about 12 seconds. Inside, you have no idea when the plane goes up and down. It's this whole arc that lasts 24 seconds that you perceive as no gravity. Right, and, right. So... Right from that phase of heavy compression, hypergravity, you go straight into no gravity for 20, 25 seconds. And it's really an amazing feeling. So it's just the first second is odd. Uh, everybody uh, yells and cries. And, it, <laughs> and which is, I think, is perfectly fine. We evolved as an ape on the African savanna. Uh, you know, to suddenly go from being twice as heavy to having no weight at all is not something we've really evolved to deal with at all. <laughs> not at all, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if anything, we are evolved to be scared of it because normally when you have no gravity, it means that you fall from a tree. Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So you've fallen from the biggest tree in the world. Exactly. So what your instinct does is it you try to grab onto whatever you can. 
Okay? That's exactly what happens. And it's this, it's this great instinct that we have from that evolutionary scenario that you described. There's no question about it. That's the normal instinct that we have to this absence of gravity. And it makes perfect sense in the tropical forest. It's, it's pointless, of course, in the plane. So you have to accept <laughs> that you are now without gravity. And it only takes about really two or three seconds for your brain, I guess, to make that, to go to that acceptance of... Does it happen every, like every, you've done it a few times now. So do you still have the same reaction? Is it something that you can control or do you always have that two or three seconds of monkey freak out? Uh, no, you, you, do, you do learn how to deal with it uh, okay. clearly. Normally, when you go again a year later, uh, you know, the first parabola is always amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're all amazing, but that, that extreme sensation, you, you tend to get it only on the first few. And because uh, I should tell you, you do 31 in one flight. Oh, my goodness. And so you accumulate about 11, 12 minutes of zero G per flight. But to complete the scenario, you now have these 24 seconds of microgravity and now the plane is diving deep down. It's you know, shooting towards the ocean or towards the ground at the end of this parabolic arc. And what the pilot has to do is he has to pull that plane out of that emergency situation. In fact, if you are in the cockpit, all the red lights are flashing and noises are beeping. <laughs> It's, it's an emergency situation for the, for the plane. It's, it's yep. not meant to be in that state. So the pilot now has to find a controlled way of pulling that plane out of its uh, diving trajectory. I think the technical term is death spiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's sort of that thing. And the plane is not in a spiraling motion in, a, in that moment. But what, what will happen is... The, pilot has to pull the stick and lift the nose up again to, to reach a steady horizontal flight. Now that turn takes about 20 seconds again, during which you feel hypergravity inside the plane. Right. So in a nutshell, from steady flight, you go into 20 seconds of twice normal gravity, where you get compressed as a passenger. Then suddenly you are weightless, where you float freely in the cabin. Then you go back into hypergravity and then back to normal state of flight. And then you repeat the same maneuver 31 times. <laughs> so you're traveling you... at the speed of sound at the top of the atmosphere and you're about to tell us that you're going to be armed with lasers and detonating water that's on fire. That's right. That's right. You're, you're a supervillain, aren't you? That's, that's what, <laughs> I mean, you can tell us. You can tell us. It's all right. We won't tell anyone. But you are definitely a supervillain. <laughs> So what happens, so what's the difference between doing this experiment in zero G uh, rather than on the ground or in a gravitational well, well? Dan, Dan, don't ruin it for everyone. It's just to get on that plane, man. There's no reason for it. It's great. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, look, there's no, that, before I come back to the question, there's, there's no question about um, that we got into studying gravitation because of these flights. So... <laughs> When I was 24 years old, I, had just, uh, I was just in my master thesis, and there was a, a very good friend of mine, and we had, we had a beer, and we were both sort of in the middle of our exams, and there was this poster next to where we had the beer that showed this plane, and, you know, said, European Space Agency calls for student projects to fly in microgravity. We said, hey, 
Uh, that sounds like a really cool thing. And so we got a team together of four people and, and we contacted different laboratories you know, on the university campus and said, Gus, can you think of anything that could be done in zero G? And <laughs> <laughs> So you were um, a solution looking for a problem. That's right. That's great. Oh, I love it. Oh, it's so good. Funnily enough, we didn't stay there. Actually, we were, we were about uh, 15 European student teams got selected in that one year to fly in their plane. They filled the whole plane with student teams. And all these student experiments were, were quite funny and very diverse. But... I was, was a bit lucky and, and, and produced really interesting science results. And so uh, we published them as a physical review letters, which is sort of a, um, a golden journal in, in physical sciences. And it was very unexpected that we would have this success. And so the European Space Agency was quite surprised that any of the students' teams published anything, let alone... Uh, <laughs> so they came back to us uh, and said, guys, do do you want to fly on our professional com um, campaigns where we have, you know, all the big shots in microgravity research as well as a bunch of astronauts that will go up to the ISS the, the following week um, and you can fly with us and then do your experiment again and better and so on if, if that's the rate at which you try to publish. And we went again the following year in 2006, and from then on, it was just an ongoing, an ongoing story where we tried to maintain a, a high rate of, of, you know, of scientific uh, impact, and, and and also had new people come into the team, PhD students, master students. We are now just about to finish the, the third PhD program on the, on this particular project, so it has evolved into something that suddenly is actually a bit science-driven. And I tell you, I'm. Personally, now quite happy to let another student fly on the experiment and, and just stay on the ground and wait for them to come back with some results. So it's, mm. it's true that the original driver was just, oh, let's go into that plane, let's make something up that's interesting. And, and, and it has worked. And now, so we turned the situation back from the head onto its feet. You know, yeah. Wow. So, so as Dan, Dan asked before, what, why, why is microgravity, why do you need to do it in microgravity? Why is it better than doing it on the ground, beyond the fun of the plane? Yes. Uh, back to this question. So when you do it on the ground, you now try to create this perfectly spherical bubble. And what you find is you cannot create a perfectly spherical bubble in the presence of gravity. Because gravity in, creates an asymmetry in water. At the, bottom of the ocean, the pressure is higher than at the top of the ocean. That's the most simple view of this. In the case of a small water recipient with a bubble inside, the situation is slightly more complicated, but you can imagine how gravity being oriented in one direction creates something that is not spherical in the evolution of that bubble. Oh, it kind mm. of wants to pull it down into a, into a pancake shape, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. It actually sort of gets deformed a bit like maybe more like an apple. An apple that sort of has a, is a bit flattened, but then has this jet entering from the top, you know, where the apple normally is attached to the, to the tree. Oh, right. <laughs> that sort of almost heart-shaped uh, geometry. It's not really what we want, because the whole idea of this experiment is to simplify, simplify, simplify. Okay? In the case of the ship propeller, you have a billion bubbles at every one time. Everything is moving. No bubble looks like the other one. Bubbles are interacting with each other. It's very complicated to get any science out of this. So what you do is, first of all, you do an experiment that is not moving, okay, where you don't have a turning ship propeller. 
Then you try to reduce the number of bubbles, ideally you know, to just a few, or even as in our case, just a single one. Then the third thing you try to do is you make this bubble shape as simple as possible. So that's what we did. We have an experiment that can do just one bubble of an exactly controlled size, perfectly spherical, and we just want to understand the physics in this case. And once we do, we then complicate it. We add a second bubble and so on. We struggle to do this perfectly spherical bubble in gravity. Just gravity destroys the situation, really, and suddenly you have a different shock wave and mm. so on. So we said, we need to suppress gravity. Let's go in the plane, yeah, remove gravity from the whole situation. And That's fantastic. I love how it's sort of one thing sort of led to the next thing, which has led to this massive experiment. Something very simple became something very complicated to answer what seems like it should be a simple question, but you just seem to have learned more and more and more and become and, and realize it's got deeper and deeper and deeper. Exactly. Look, uh, in my opinion, the most interesting questions in science are those that are very simple to ask and very hard to answer. Well, I'm just very pleased that you've taught us how to weaponize teleporters. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you've got out of this. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I just want to point out, I mean, the thing I want to, I think exciting is to all the people that are listening uh, who sort of work in the sciences, I love this as a, an example of what maybe can sound off as a crazy idea has turned into something, you know, a dream come true and then also really good science. So never think your ideas are stupid or, or not worthy because they could lead to somewhere really interesting. I think that's, that's a very fair point. And perhaps what has to be added, you've got to work hard for the ideas. I mean, of course, yeah. when I tell you the story now, you know, it sounds like, Oh, take a bit of a laser, a bit of some water, check it into the plane. And, but, of course, you can imagine that behind this are you know, lots of sleepless nights that you spend in a dungeon in the laboratory, uh, getting the thing set up. You write research proposals to get the cash in. You have to defend the science in front of the European Space Agency to get the whole experiment approved uh, you know, for, with flight safety requirements, especially to space standards. It's, it's very tough. So, yeah, there are, yeah. on the way, moments where you think this is not going to happen, and it's, or, or at least it's not worth the effort. But I think when you look back at it, it's, it's such a good lesson learned that it's definitely worth to sort of fight for an idea that you think is just uh, yeah, a fun one and, and worth pursuing. That's so cool. Uh, is there a question that we've not asked you, which is a question that you would l have loved to have been asked? Well, sometimes people sort of ask, and I, I always like to explain how it actually feels to be weightless. And that's a bit away from cavitation. I'm not sure if that's, if that's any relevant for this po podcast, but maybe I'm, that's still worth explaining. All right, well, if you're excited about telling us. <laughs> <laughs> because being weightlessness is really a, a phenomenal sensation. As I mentioned before, as soon as the plane enters the zero-gravity phase, you first get a weird sensation of your stomach sort of coming up, but... Maybe after one or two seconds already, you realize that nothing bad has happened. Your stomach is in the right place. And suddenly you have this sensation of being completely free. It's almost as if your body weren't there anymore. And because there is no gravity, you suddenly realize that there is no real up and down. Of course, you see where the seats are in the plane. Your brain, your rational brain knows that this was down. But it doesn't really make sense to call it down anymore. And 
All it takes is yourself pushing one of these chairs and what will happen is you start spinning across the plane. But you don't perceive that as you spinning. You just perceive it as the plane spinning around you. Oh. See, because there's no more other reference than yourself. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's a phenomenal sensation and you have all these other things and suddenly your experiment that, you know, you use, you should work with is sort of above you and to the side and turning and these other people and... So you feel like you're turning the entire chassis of the plane around you. So you'd feel as strong as I do. That's right. <laughs> I feel like that anyways. <laughs> good. Oh, wow. Look, this has been a really interesting conversation from bubbles to the edge of space to, to 10,000 degree plasmas to teleporting whales. I've had an absolute ball. Thank you very much to Dr. Daniel Abrusko of the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research for talking to us today about, about this exciting stuff. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me. Have fun. Bye. That was amazingly exciting. I, my goodness, I, who would have thought a simple bubble, a vacuum bubble, any sort of bubble would be so interesting. Nothing can be so dangerous in its correct shape. <laughs> Bubbles, nature's assassins. That's great. You uh, have my... been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg at smartenough.org. You can follow us on Twitter at SE2KB. And Facebook SE2KB. And get onto iTunes and rate and review us because we love that. And subscribe so that yeah. you don't miss an episode. That's right. Because we're doing exciting stuff all the time. Also because it puts us up in the charts and uh, we get a big oh, well, kick out of... Because we want to beat Dr. Carl. That's right. That's our only thing in life. Oh, yes. We just we, we want to creep up behind him. He's like, oh, there's those guys again. No, we're coming for you, Carl. We're coming. Ah, we're going to promote science just like you. Ah. <laughs> that's, our, that's our plan. That's me. That's why Every night I go to bed at night. That's, that's, they're, they're my little... My little prayers uh, one day one day <laughs> if you are in perth at the end of february you should check out the perth fringe festival because you might well, see the end of the end of january you mean the end of january i need to change some flights um at the end of january keep a lookout at the perth fringe festival because your old pals greg and dan will be performing in speed the movie the play it's right so we redo uh, basically take the the grand 90s classic speed by keanu reeves with keanu reeves and it's by, by keanu, keanu reeves, reeves. And he did the whole by thing keanu, that's right, he wrote it directed it he's an amazing man and uh, we recreate it in a fun and interesting way on a real bus it has been touted as one of the 10 top productions you must see at the fringe festival so don't miss out because we'll be only 40 seats on the bus and each show will fill very very quickly what else Remember the end this of our. End. Remember the end where we used to just kind of waffle and just sort of fade out into sort of this. I'm glad we energetic. have actually learned not to do that. That's um, yeah, we've done we done very well. I too am glad that we have learned not to do that. <laughs> and as we always like to say, don't teleport whales. Good advice. Um, and can you uh, can you introduce him? Didn't I do it in the podcast? Don't do the interview. You did, um, but there might have been a tech issue on this end. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, one of the okay. uh, one of the buttons wasn't pressed by one of my technicians, 
And so... How much have we lost? Uh, what's important is how much we saved. I saved. They saved. The technicians. The... Yeah. Uh, you know, the saddest thing That's... is that that wonderful joke about how our podcast is set as explicit simply because they don't have a traumatic tag. All gone. Yes. All gone. All the energy uh, from that joke. We lost, we lost all that. So oh, I'm not concerned. <laughs> good. good to hear. Good to my hear. Catch, fr- catch cry of the year, I think. <laughs> Everyone else is like, 2016! I'm not concerned. <laughs>